this episode will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can call Lifeline at any time on 13114. You can also call Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36. I got to that point where I had to get help or I, I wouldn't be here doing this podcast with you. I'd be, you know, my wife would be talking about, you know, the husband that she lost. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who, through various trajectories, have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. Sam, thank you for spending some time with us. Um, tonight. Um, My pleasure. What we usually do is just try to get a picture of um, what sort of motivated you to have a chat with us. Um, I know the motivation is probably um, more, more from our end, our, our interest, and um, but what sort of brought you towards a, a podcast around um, death and dying, grief and hope? Uh, look, I, I think about probably let's say two or three years ago, um, I made a decision that I was going to use my experience to try and um, help where it was appropriate to help um, when it was asked for. And so, uh, you know, my view is that, you know, with some of the things that I've been through in my life, um, you know, to have it not really mean anything or to not have an opportunity to sort of help with it, um, you know, it, it, it feels like it, you know, you go through all that darkness. If, if you can't have a little bit of light at the end, then, then it just makes it even darker, you know. So if I can, if I can tell my story or, uh, you know, or I can help someone understand a little bit better, I'm happy to do that, you know. Mm. And the darkness, where's, could you tell me more about, tell us more about that darkness and maybe when you first encountered it? So I, um, I am someone who suffers from anxiety and depression and I really never, re- I, I never really understood what it was. Um, I was talking to someone about this the other day and I really was of the view that um, I, I didn't know that everybody didn't feel like this. Um, I thought that this was just normal, you know, so I would um, go through these terrible lows um, even as a kid, you know, these terrible lows and this uh, suicidal ideation as a seven or eight-year-old. And I just assumed that everybody felt the same. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I didn't know what it was. And so, you know, I would, I would experience these lows and then kind of come out of them and then, you know, the anxiety that would kick in and, and, the, and the fears that I would have that, the things that were just not 
not rational, you know, that, that, I mean, all kids grow up with a little bit of fear or a little bit of uncertainty, but, you know, just these fears that would outweigh their natural purpose, you know, I would be terrified that, you know, that I was, one example I can think of, I was terrified that I was going to be possessed by the devil. I don't know why, we weren't very religious family, but to the point where I felt like if I wasn't constantly praying or or doing something that was going to please God, that, that, that I was going to be possessed by the devil. Now, as a, you know, as a seven-year-old or, or a nine-year-old, that doesn't really make sense, but I just assumed that, you know, that there was something, this was something that everybody went through and this just happened to be my thing. And growing up with it, you know, when I got to an age where, um, I could drink. I mean, I'm, you know, I think we all drank under 18, but, you know, don't arrest me now. But, you know, when I got to the point where I could actively go to the pub or nightclubs or stuff like that, you know, it just was a, a release. And then I'd wake up with this depression and it was, it was crazy because I would, I would wake up and I'd feel, I mean, everybody feels a bit, when you're a bit hungover, you feel a bit precious, but I would feel suicidal. You know, I would feel like, um, particularly when I discovered illicit drugs, you know, you'd go really high and then that low and I'd be, you know, I'd be afraid to be by myself. And I remember saying to a friend once, you know, do you, do you kind of feel like this after you've had a few drinks or maybe, you know, you've done some, some drugs or whatever. And, and he was like, no, that's not what I felt. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't either. I'm just saying, you know, like, cause I kind of panicked. I went, maybe there is something wrong with me. Yeah. And off and on, this continued until um, a precipitating event in my life where my wife and I lost our first daughter. And that kind of spiraled me into such a deep depression that I became in a real suicidal crisis, you know, like where it was, I shouldn't really, I'm, I'm worried to be by myself. It was when I reached out for help and I got the help that I needed that I kind of was able to reflect and realise that I'd been living with this my whole life. I just didn't know what it was. I just didn't understand. I didn't have a name for it. You know, I, I, I suspected that there was something wrong with me, but I just, my view of someone who was depressed was someone who couldn't do anything, couldn't go anywhere, or, you know, my view of someone who was suicidal was this sort of, you know, person who kind of hung around in dark corners and, you know, sort of didn't shower for three weeks and, you know, kind of was this sort of actively kind of dangerous person to be around. Mm. Um, I didn't think that it looked like me and I didn't, I certainly didn't think depression and anxiety looked like me until I understood what it was. And then I kind of got it and went, I went, Oh, okay. I get it now. I get it. I, I, I can see the, I can see that this is not what everybody feels and I can see that this is something that I need to deal with. Um, and it took a number of years to sort of get the balance right with medication and the right counselling support and, and the right support mechanisms in place. Um, but I was, you know, I was kind of late thirties when I, before I kind of really got it right. And I'm not to say that I don't still struggle from time to time, but, you know, to live 38 years like that is, 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 is a really, it's sad in a way because, you know, I could have probably got help a lot earlier, but it's also, um, 
I'm happy I got it then. I'm happy I wasn't 58, not 38, you know? So when you were seven and eight, you had, you had this, this fear of being possessed or by the, mm. by the, by the devil. What, what was yeah. your idea of the devil? What, what was your... I, well, it was this... It, <laughs> and this is the thing. It was this kind of manifestation. And it, 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 it goes to show the irrationality of the fear that, that I had because we weren't a religious household. So it's not like I had kind of grown up with this belief that if you, you know, that, that traditional kind of religious belief that, you know, if you sin, you go to hell, you know, that it just wasn't something that we grew up with. We weren't a religious family. Um, but it was just this belief that there was this belief of doom and gloom, you know, this idea that um, things were not going to be okay, you know, that, that things were not going to be right. And, and that, you know, this enhanced view that action had consequences, you know, that if I wasn't, you know, if I, for example, if I killed a mosquito, you know, that that was somehow a sin and that that would, you know, I'd have points against me to go to hell. And so I needed to sort of balance it out with something good, which for an eight year old just doesn't make sense. You know, it's, it's sort of this yin and yang, which I had no idea what it was, but this, kind of balancing out of do a not good thing if you think you've done the bad thing. But this this genuine terror that it was going to have a consequence and it was going to affect me or my family, this this genuine terror that I lived with constantly, looking back on it now, I mean, I have an eight-year-old now. If, if my daughter said that to me, I'd be like, whoa, like that's... But back then, I just assumed that that was how everybody lived. Right. And, and, and it drove me to feel like, well, if this is life, I don't want to live it anymore. Right. And how did that terror, that experience of being in that, because that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, real terrifying, gruesome way to, to live as a, such a young, young boy. Mm. How did that progress to the point where, um, where substance alcohol became involved? Well, look, I, I mean, I, as I got a bit older, you know, I kind of, got a little bit more rational around, you know, sort of this idea that I was going to end up in hell at any given moment. Um, I started to think, well, maybe that's probably not going to happen. Um, but I had this continual anxiety within me around really anything, you know, anything that was, um, you know, that was anxiety producing, whether it was, schoolwork or, or um, sports, you know, if the pressure of sports was, you know, I really struggled with because I was so terrified that if I made a mistake or if something happened and then I was to blame for it or, or you know, that if I tried really hard at a test and I failed it, well, then what does that mean? Does that mean that I'll never be able to do things? The only thing that I found relieved it um, and I, look, I don't want to give the impression that I was some, I wasn't a hardcore drug user or, or anything like that, but certainly when I got to 15 or 16 and, you know, we were experimenting with smoking pot or drinking beers or whatever, um, that provided an instant relief. You know, it was sort of like, there's that confidence that I should have always felt. There's that, you know, that, that bravado, you know, that, that sort of, um, 
comfortability in my own skin that, that things are going to be okay, followed by that inevitable crash the next day where I went even lower, you know. And I I discovered at a young age that, that you know, um, I was able to make people laugh by telling jokes. And so once I discovered I could do that, it sort of gave me this boost of confidence and that became my go-to mechanism. You know, so if I was feeling uncomfortable with a situation or, or anything, I'd just try and make people laugh. So I gave the impression that I was incredibly confident. People would be like, oh, you know, you're great. You know, you tell jokes. You know, if you have to do a stand-up in front of the class, you make everybody laugh. But it really masked this, this underlying terror and anxiety. Um, and when I drank or used drugs, I didn't need that that, I could relax a bit. I didn't need to be on show. I didn't need to sort of make everybody laugh. I could just be a drunk idiot like everybody else. And I could relax for a short period of time. You know, I had, however long that was, I could relax and be a little crazy and, and feel a bit confident. You know, that sort of, that drunken bravado that people get, you know, where they're like, I'm the best dancer in the world. You know, I'm the best fighter in the world, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I had that for a short period of time. Mm. But of course, you know, then I discovered chemicals and things like that, which then just extended that out another tenfold. Mm. Um, but of course, what goes up must come down. So every time I did it, the next day was just, it was a nightmare. It was terrible. Mm. You know, that just that darkness. And, and it would take me so long to come out of it. And I wasn't alone in feeling that. I mean, everybody that's done drugs or, or chemicals or whatever, you know, you have that low afterwards. That's not a, that's not kind of a, an anomaly. But what, for me, it just seemed to go to the point of of, of utter bleakness. You know, like I well, like I remember a couple of times just going, well, I'm not going to see you the next day. Like that's it. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take my life today. You know. And in a way, that gave me a bit of relief because I was like, at least, I, at least I don't have to feel like this for longer than just today. Mm. And it was just miracles, you know. And when I say miracles, you know, I was distracted, or people wouldn't leave my house, or whatever, that I didn't get the opportunity. And by the time the opportunity presented itself, I was coming out of it, and I was a bit like, oh, that was a bit of a crazy thought. But you know, oh, well, I guess, you know, I shouldn't take so much ecstasy next time. Maybe that was the problem, you know. But you know, it was just heightening what was already going on. You know, it would mask it for a short period of time and then put it on steroids the next day. That terror that was going on in your brain that you just needed to get away from. Um, what, if, if we're going into that terror, mm -hmm. what do you think it was? What, what was behind that terror? I think it was just a general anxiety you know, of things and the, and the deep, the deep seated belief that I wasn't enough, you know, that, that somehow I was less than I was broken, you know? And so, um, you know, I was always too skinny or, or too, you know, people would say I was smart, but I didn't really ever do well at school. So maybe, you know, they're wrong. Maybe I've just fooled them into thinking I'm smart or, or, you know, um, you know, maybe my girlfriend didn't really love me or care about me because, you know, she really knew, you know, she fell in love with a persona, but now that she knows the real me, she's falling out of love or, 
um, you know, what if I get into a fight and I get beaten up, you know, and I'm not a very good fighter, you know, like all of these, these things that just, you know, kind of piled on, you know, this, this kind of deep thinking, this ruminating on things that, that other people just didn't seem to ruminate on. And I was always really jealous of it, you know, because people would make a mistake and they'd go, well, you know, and they'd move on. I'd make a mistake and, and, and I would think about it for weeks and months and, and be like, you know, that has got to be the stupidest thing anybody, you know, how did I, what was I, how did I do that? What was I thinking? And then, you know, what if people find out that I've made this mistake or what if people know that I've done this and, you know, just this living in your head, you know, I call it the shitty committee, just kind of living in this, you know, dealing with this shitty committee in your head constantly, like, okay, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, da, 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 da. you know, I used to make the joke that um, sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night, you know, and the shitty committee would go, oh, I'm glad you're awake. There's a few things I wanted to share with you. Um, <laughs> you're, a you're a loser. Nobody likes you and you're going to be a failure. Um, anyway, good night, you know, because then I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd be like, oh, yeah, good call. What am I going to do about that? Right, did, okay, I need to. Did anyone else get to see the shitty committee or were you pretty good at hiding the shitty committee <laughs> no it was in my head it was uh and look i wasn't hearing voices it was just that that self-doubt you know and i i was so jealous of these people with with this confidence to do things you know that i yeah. just didn't have you know and yet i appeared to be such a confident person people would be like oh you know i kill for your confidence and i'm like Ooh. Not sure you would. <laughs> like, so did you give off any signs about what you were going through other than that conversation with your friend? Uh, look, I think people who were, I didn't allow a lot of people to get too close. And looking back on it now, I didn't develop a lot of really close friendships because I, I, I wasn't really very genuine in my friendships with people. I was, you know, I always thought that, I needed to continually prove my value as a friend. So I needed to constantly amuse and entertain and, and you know, be, um, you know, never come to, with any problems or any issues or, or ever be honest about what was happening with me because I then might become a burden. And I probably wasn't really worth the friendship anyway. So if I became a burden, that just kind of adds to the problem. So... I, I, I don't think anybody really picked it up and not because they didn't care, but I think I didn't allow anybody to get close enough to really pick it up, you know? Um, and when I was feeling particularly low, I just did something to distract myself. You know, it was either more drinking or more partying or, or, or something else, you know, it was just another thing that I kind of pasted on. And I often describe it as, you know, I felt like the piece of shit the whole world revolved around. You know, I had a very low self-esteem, but a massive ego. Mm. And I was always like, you know, like I'm the best. You know, like I would say to people, I'm so handsome, I'm the best. You know, but it wasn't true. But my, at my core, it wasn't true. But I just felt this, you know, kind of, I, I placed it on so much stuff externally that I'm not surprised no one picked it up because, well, no one really got a chance to ever get to know me because I spent a lot of time pretending to be something and that I'm not. And Sam, Sam, well, so 
while you were doing a great job at suppressing it and making people oblivious to to what's going on what what was going on what was the real what was the real sam what was i'm really interested in the experiences from a a day to day and how you grinded through having such dark thoughts dark you know lonely so thoughts i gave the impression that nothing faced me but i didn't care you know like Fail a subject at uni, whatever, I don't care. You know, like, this happens, whatever, I don't care, you know. The real Sam was very much, was very sensitive, was a very sensitive person and grew up as a very sensitive little boy, you know. I was very sensitive and, and you know, I mean, I grew up in the 80s where the term sensitive was not a compliment, it was, uh, it was an insult, you know. If you were seen as sensitive, that was a problem. You know, so, um, you know, the real Sam, as I grew into adulthood, was was very unsure of himself and and just really longed for friendship and, and longed for genuine connection and, you know, kept everything at the surface. But when I was alone or, or, or you know, or struggling with something, I, you know, I was, I was a bit morose and, and a little bit um, serious. And, and, and I gave the impression that I was very frivolous, you know, like nothing will faze me. Like you can throw anything at me, I'm like, couldn't even care less. But in actuality, I really was, you know, I was longing for, I, I was a person who was very real. And I often say that I, I hate small talk. I really like medium and big talk. I'm not very good at small talk, you know, people, I'm still really amazed at people who can go to social events and make small yeah. talk, you know, yeah. because I'm a very gregarious person. And I love people, but I struggle with how's the weather how, after we get to how's the weather, how's work and how have you been? Yeah. <laughs> I've got nothing else. You know, I struggle with that. Yeah. I'm the sort of person that'll go, yeah. you know, like they'll say something and I'll say, Oh, that must be a really interesting you know, thing that you're doing, you know, tell me more about it. And yeah. people are like, oh, you know, like, oh, whatever, you know. Networking <laughs> events, networking events is my idea. You want to talk about going to hell? It's me at a networking event. You know, where people come up and they just shake your hand and oh. I, I just disguise it with Jason, every fibre of my being. I feel like Jason has a very similar outlook. <laughs> yeah. I don't, even need to, I don't even need to say anything. I'm just, I'm just. Yeah. I just, I, it, it, the whole concept of, of, sitting around having this banal conversations I, I i don't know what to do with it i i, I get really agitated and a bit anxious because i'm like what are we i don't care about the weather you know like i'm you know and i worry they're going to ask me a question you know something really frivolous like you know yeah. what do you do for a living and i'm like oh and i know they're trying to connect and that's fine. yeah but longing for a genuine connection yeah and i always wanted a genuine connection so yeah. If I ever put that 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 hand out to 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 male friends, you know, I would be looked at with a bit of suspicion, you know, because mm. frivolous. He was this frivolous guy who used to mm. be the one that did all the crazy things, like when I lived at uni college, you know, jumping off the second floor into a ducky dipper pool, you know, wearing like 
doing nude runs all of a sudden wants to have this really serious conversation. It's not aligned. Yeah, like, it's who like, the fuck? Yeah. Who is this person? Who is yeah. this person? Like, where did yeah. they come from? You know, yeah. like, what the hell? You know, yeah. so it, 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 it just didn't, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to them because I'd go from this frivolous lunatic to, to then trying to make this real connection. And then, you know, these people kind of going, look, you're kind of going from zero to a hundred, you know, like I, I'm not ready to connect, you know, at that level. Yeah. But that was my anxiety. That was my, that was my desire for connection. And I just didn't know how to find the middle ground. I was so jealous of people that could, you know. But what's, what's the middle ground? Like, <laughs> well, this progression. So, you know, relationships progress from, you know, from the, from the small talk and the, you know, to catching up and, and then kind of moving through these stages. Yeah. Of yeah. Friendship that, you know, and friendship takes time to build. The small talk is like the bridge to the big talk. Yes. So what I yeah. always say is, you know, when I tell my story about, um, you know, when I'm talking about my experience with suicidal ideation, you know, I talk about trying to find people to get to big talk, you know, yeah. if, you know, small talks kind of the, you know, the, the the fertile ground where you start growing something. Medium talk is the bridge. Yeah. And big talk is the doorway that opens it up to real connection. You know, that that progression. You start off yeah. sort of going, how's the weather? And tell me more about your job. Yeah. When you spend some time together, you then get to this medium talk before you get to big talk, which is, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with this and I need some help. Yeah. I would go from medium talk or zero talk to you know, big talk back to, you know, this is all getting too serious. So it's time to go back to stupid talk. Uh, yeah. And people would look at me like, I don't, you know, I'm not even sure what you're on. You I know? just feel like we have to just pause here because Jason and I have had so many conversations about this. Um, and, and that idea that like <laughs> you have to go through the motions with people or you feel like you yes. do. And you have to go through the shit at the start of the conversation. Yes. And that start of the conversation might stay like that for like a year with some people yes. until you can actually get some interesting ground. Yes. Um, yes. Chase, what is, what's your. No, I, I thought you were going to bring up the, uh, the theory. The, oh, no, uh... You can explain the theory. Oh, it's your theory. Well, um, so I think Maddie and I are at odds with the, the, the let's say, the benefit of small talk. I, I'm very much of the, the opinion and of, I'm okay with small talk, but not, not, not prolonged, consistent, repetitive mm-hmm. small talk. Um, and I, I don't necessarily believe that, um, everyone's got different levels of uh, capacity to an interest and desires to want to go down and, and, and talk about things that are not tangible, they're not factual, you know, that are, that are unknown mm. um, and, and scary and fearful. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's an issue we have with men in general is, is yeah, that we just, we just, it's, it, the desire is, is one thing, but, it's it seems too judgmental or too uh, reductionist to be able to say that someone hasn't got the capacity so then what is it what is it about males that um 
that 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 can't connect. I mean, we 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 we're good at talking and we're good at talking about the footy and we're good at talking about well, what's what's happening with um, your family and your friends, but it just seems to be on repeat, getting nowhere when really men yeah. are suffering. Absolutely, and look, every day, six men take their lives uh, in Australia every single day. It's it's one of the biggest killers for men um, in the country. It's 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 uh, uh, you know it's a huge problem. Um, and, and look, there's a lot of work that's being done by it, but it's still. I would say that toxic masculinity is still killing a number of men every single day, which is why I'm so passionate about putting a face to to men's depression and and not just you know calling out that it happens to anyone and everyone mm. the face of, of of a suicidal man is not just the guy you see you know and i don't even know if that person even exists but that you know that kind of person who's living in the park or in and out of institutions and that, you know that it's mm. the ceo it's mm. your football star you know it's the guy who you know, grew up as the, you know, the local hero, you know, it's the guy who reads books. It's the guy who's, mm. you know, it, it affects everyone and anyone. And until we can sort of accept that, it, it, we're going to keep struggling, I think. Mm. Sam, do, do you think, I mean, I'm extremely passionate and I, I get a bit agitated around the lack of care um, that men can have for each other, um, and and not just not 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 just men, but the society in general. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, look, if 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 we're to prevent men men, you mentioned six six men die every day. That it, mm-hmm. it it just it just astronomical to me and unfathoming how that that how that how that happens how how we yeah. continuously let men who have families or well, it doesn't matter if they've got families that they're, they're a human being and we're allowing men to take their own life and and that's not including the people that you know right now maybe even listening to this podcast have or have had thoughts of ending yep. their life yep. and it's just this silent you know this 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 silent venom that um, yeah. seems to be some some it's untouchable, but then it just feels like we're just not doing enough. We're not even hitting the surface. Mm. Yeah. So it's and look, I absolutely agree. You know, I mean, the more men from different backgrounds, you know, the more men who sort of come from varied areas and industries and and sort of ethnic backgrounds and, and interests and all those sorts of things that come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm affected by it too. The faster we're going to start solving these problems or the faster we're going to get to a, a solution to these problems, you know, pulling this stuff out of the darkness, you know, yeah. the, removing this stigma, this idea that, you know, if you are caring for someone with a mental illness, that it's, an, it's a shame or it's an embarrassment. Yeah. And I know so many carers at the moment who really have given their their whole life in caring for a member of their family that that has a you know is suicidal or, or maybe has a mental illness 
a diagnosable mental illness or, or, or something who carry a burden of shame that, that somehow this is a failure on them or mm. that they don't want the neighbours to know. Well, you know, if we can get this stuff out there and say, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. I mean, if you broke your arm or I've got type one diabetes, I don't, I don't walk around like, you know, my family don't go, oh, Sam's got diabetes. It's so like, please don't nobody mention the diabetes. It's so <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it's just completely acceptable. It's just yeah. seen as an illness and, and you get sympathy. You get, you know, almost everyone I meet kind of goes, oh, okay, well, you know, do you need something to eat or, you know, yeah. everybody's really understandable. But if I went into a workplace and said, you know, I actually experienced suicidal ideation and I've had a really rough weekend, so I just need a couple of days off. People would be like, ooh, it's a bit awkward. Uh, what's yeah. the phone ringing? Is that the time? I've got to, to run them all. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, we just don't treat it the same way and I, and I don't get it. I don't know why there's this difference. They're both illnesses. They both need support. You both uh, need as much connection as you can. Yeah, the, the people still put more value in the, the physical outlet mm. of pain than the mental outlet of pain. To be honest with you, diabetes is seen as not my fault. Yeah. My mental illness can, is, you know, my depression and anxiety. You know, there is almost this underlying belief that it's, it's kind of my fault. You know, yeah. exercise more, go for a walk, get yeah. fresh air, you know, get sun. All of these things are great, but they're not going to cure depression. Yeah. Or, or willpower, willpower. Yeah. Hear that? Yeah, you just be, you know, just be. Well, you just need to get more sleep, or exercise yeah. more, or change your diet. You know, all yeah. great things because it gives you a holistic look at it. But you're not going to cure bipolar by getting fresh air and walking around the oval. No. You're not going to cure um, depression and anxiety by walking around the oval. You might look at some of the symptoms, but the underlying cause is going to exist. You need to treat it. <laughs> you know. No one's ever said to me, look, the way to cure your type 1 diabetes is just have a walk around the oval and get some fresh air. <laughs> never happened. You know? Um, if you only know, it were that easy, then no one would have bipolar. <laughs> no yeah, one exist. You know, you could cure schizophrenia by just Going for a walk. Getting, everybody, getting everybody on an exercise plan. Yeah, could be great. Great save, for personal trainers. It's like yeah. billions of year in um, yeah. in costs to the medical system for mental health. Yeah, but but you know, um, going back to the that whole toxic masculinity, um, uh, you know that comment that you said really stuck with me. That um, toxic masculinity is killing men. Yeah. Um, do you think that it nearly killed you? Absolutely, because it was this belief that. If I, you know, that, 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 that sort of, I would never be attractive to a partner, you know, that I'd never find a girl who would like me or, um, you know, I'd never have any mates, you know, if, if I in any way showed a level of sensitivity that, that, you know, I'd be always stuck in the friend zone. You know, someone said to me, if you talk about that stuff, you'll end up in the friend zone because no girls want to date someone like that. They're happy to be friends with you because they worry and they, they feel sorry for you, but no one would ever want to date you. And I was like, well, I don't want to, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. So better not talk about that. You know, so it was, I'm going to be a tough guy. When in reality, I'm not a tough guy. I'm, you know, 
I don't think I've ever won a fist fight in my life. Mm. I may have, but I don't remember it, you know. But, yes. but this belief that, you know, it was kind of like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a tough guy, you know, and I'm really going to get out there and get amongst it. And it, and it, you know, it nearly killed me. Is that what isolated you, do you think? Yes, yeah, because I couldn't find, I couldn't find anybody. And you know what? I would say in all fairness to the friends that I've had over the years and the people I've known I've had over the years that have been in my circle over the years that had I been honest with them, they probably would have been fine with it. It was me putting that stuff on them. No one, none of them ever said to me, listen, if you ever get upset, I just want you to know that I'll never talk to you again. It was me thinking, well, I need to keep up this facade. I need to keep up this kind of strong sort of, you know, man's man kind of persona um, in order to keep a place in the world, you know, to be to be valid, you know, to, to be validated as a person that, that if mm -hmm. I kept up this, you know, persona that somehow, you know, I would, I would, I don't know, you know, that, 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 that it would give me a place, you know, that I was, well, that that's give what... my life a purpose. Yeah, and, and that you, you can't blame yourself in a way. That's what you're taught culturally and by basically every Hollywood movie, that if you retain that strength, um, yeah. that dominance as a male, then things will be okay. You'll find the girl, you'll have the happy family, things will be great. Yeah. Like there's you know. no narrative, that no dominant narratives that shows what happens if you don't do that. Yeah. You know, if you if you've got the biggest muscles the world's ever seen that somehow that entitles you to to sort of more a bit a, 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 a bigger place mm. in society you know you get the prettier girls you get the better jobs you get the better everything because if you are stronger than everybody else you know physically stronger than every other person who walks along that somehow that entitles you to to more and i i have no problems with people who go to the gym and get strong and you know i think it's it's good for you i don't have any issues with that but that's not how we that's not how people should be judged you know but it it still happens today i don't live too far from bondi you go down to bondi mm. oh my god <laughs> yeah it's like guys walking down to bondi and i think what on earth <laughs> you know like good on him but holy dooly you know like it's this idea that if you are physically imposing, that that somehow that equates strength in all areas. When in reality, that that some of these people are probably quite vulnerable. You know, they probably, you know, some of them probably have body dysmorphic issues. They probably, you know, some of them probably are, are damaging their body to maintain a body like that. Yeah, um, totally. Not all yeah. of them, but. In the belief that the bigger they are and the and the more impressive they are, the the, the better their life is. You know, totally. maybe that's not the case. Yeah, and it's concerning that that's the existence. You know, will, will they, if they do make it to a period of time where you know they're they've lost their mobility and um, they're in their final moments, is yeah. there going to be an element of regret or or, or haste towards how they've lived? their life, you know, as a reaction to, you know, how, what society wants us to, 
to look like. Mm. What I can tell you as someone who's 44 is time catches up with you. At some point, you're going, you know, there's going to have to be a reckoning. You're going to have to realise, you know, you're going to have to come back to what's really important. And when we lost our daughter, when, when Hannah died, uh, it stripped away a lot of those misconceptions I had because all of a sudden I was someone that bad things could happen to. All of a sudden I wasn't untouchable. All of a sudden I was, I was having to deal with the reality of life on life's terms and it was painful. It was so painful and I had no coping mechanisms in place. And I, you know, the thing that saved me uh, among many things, but one of them is, you know, my, my wife was pregnant with our now daughter, you know, and I, I got to the point where I thought, well, look, if I don't do something, there's a very real chance that my daughter will grow up without a father. And what sort of life do I want that to be for her, you know? Um, and I need to do something because it's not just about me anymore. You know, it's not just about sort of me wandering through life, trying to avoid the realities of life. You know, I needed to do something and, and it was hard, you know, it was hard work because I needed to be vulnerable and I needed to be, you know, but I was at that point, I was so broken that I, to be honest with you, I didn't really care. I was like, you know, like, yeah, you know, live or die, you know, like something's got to work. So I got to that point where I had to get help or I wouldn't be here doing this podcast with you. I'd be, you know, my wife would be talking about, you know, the husband that she lost. Uh, and I had a son who was born after that, you know, what, you know, what right have I got to, to sort of rob the world of that? You know, like I love being a father. I love having children. You know, I would have missed all of that if I just kept on with that toxic masculinity, if I kept on with that idea that you don't ask for help, you don't reach out, you just, you know, soldier on and punch through and oh, keep going, you know, or be stronger than everybody else. Um, I wouldn't be here and my son wouldn't exist, you know. So there's a consequence, you know. That's two lives that wouldn't be here because of toxic masculinity. How, how close did you get, Sam? So that when when it came pretty to close. pretty close, pretty close. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was really touch and go for a while. It was very close to um, you know, I mean, when you when you talk about someone's risk of actually. Um, attempting you know you, you talk about all these different you know is there a plan is there a method is there that sort of stuff i certainly was progressing past the thinking about it stage put it that way you know i i, I had certainly made up my mind on a number of things um and it was just sort of asking for help and you know, reaching out and just saying, look, I just can't do this anymore. I'm really scared because everything that I thought was going to work isn't and everything I thought that I could do to pull myself out of this isn't working. And 
I really shouldn't be by myself. I should I shouldn't be by myself because I, I don't trust myself. And you know, at whatever it was, thirty six or thirty five, I can't remember how old I was thirty four, thirty five, thirty six, something like that. To not be able to be by yourself is is you know you got a serious problem. You know, I couldn't work. I mean, thankfully the job I had at the time was not exactly taxing. You know, um, it should have been, but I had a great boss who basically was like, look, I can see things is going well, so. Uh, you know, we're not expecting too much, you know, output from you because I was, you know, I certainly wasn't, certainly wasn't producing anything at work. Um, and to be at the point where I was too afraid to let my wife go into the bathroom and have a shower by herself because I was like, what am I going to do if I get this opportunity? Um, I'm no expert i'm only a phd in my experience but i'd say that's pretty close you know there was obviously something there that i didn't trust myself yeah so the so the the, the touch and go transitioning into vocalizing it to somebody that indicates a level of you know a level of insight which is often may or may may not be seen yeah look it, it Possibly, but I, I would say that at that point it was so obvious to everybody that I, I don't think I necessarily, like when I said, look, I'm really, really struggling, nobody went, what? That's outrageous. You know, almost everybody kind of went, uh, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Um, we've been trying to help you for a while now. Um, and for my journey, it was medication. I needed to go and get some medication and I needed, I, I just needed to turn the radio down for a little while so that I could, I could start to recover because I was so out of control and not out of control in behavior, but just out of control in, in just the anxiety and the depression that had I not had something to help me just turn the radio down. Mm is the way I describe it, you know, turn the radio down for a little while. It was, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it, you know, and that was, you know, that was, you know, friends, that was my wife, that was her family, that was my family, all kind of pitching in to help me just turn that radio down a little bit and start to recover. Was there um, much people could say to turn the radio down? I think, to be honest with you, it was just being present and, having the courage and the maturity to have those conversations with me, to be able to really have those conversations with me and be real about it, you know, not dance around the issue or skirt right. around it or right. try and, you not know, sort of sugarcoat of... it. And, mm. and, you know, demonstrate to me that they, they had the maturity and the, and the courage to have a real conversation with me about whether I was thinking about ending my life, mm. about, you know, about what I was going to do to try and, to try and get some help, you know, rather than, you know, and I had a lot of well-meaning people as well. You know, I had a bit of, you know, go for a walk, get some exercise, you know, get some fresh air. That always works. Uh, and that was well-meaning, but I was beyond that point. You know, I was at the, you know, like, are you thinking of ending your life conversation point and the, you need to get some help and what do we need to do to get you that help? And, you know, can we do it together type discussion? 
um, that was what helped me kind of um, come back from the edge. And it gave me a learned experience that from then on, I knew that if I was ever in crisis again, or I was struggling, that I could say, I need help. And people would go, no problems, got it. We'll help you. Mm. Um, Because up until that point, I'd never done it. And so I didn't have any knowledge of what would happen if I did. But I needed to. That was quite obvious. Yeah. Um, And it's probably something I should have done 20 years earlier. But, you know, that's benefit of hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. And you mentioned, Sam, that it was the death of... um... The death of your daughter, Hannah. Yes, Hannah. That yeah. that sort of made things take a big turning point. Um, do you see any relationship between the death of Hannah and your own potential death? Yes, absolutely. Because up until that point, I I was I was of the belief that bad things didn't happen to me. I know I've talked about how I was, you know morose and depressed and those sorts of things but kind of had this underlying belief that I was always just going to make it through by the skin of my teeth you know that I would sort of you know that the kind of bad things weren't going to happen to me mm. in that regard and when we lost Hannah and we went through that whole grieving process that it kind of reinforced or or introduced me to this notion it stripped away my coping mechanisms so i was like we might actually be at the point now where bad things might happen to me and if one bad thing's happened to me then what if another bad thing happens to me and what if another bad thing happens to me and it reinforced for me you know that it sort of brought back all of that stuff from when i was young of you know this impending doom feeling um and, and I'd kind of got to the point in my life where I thought mm, maybe that was just, maybe the impending doom wasn't real, you know, like clearly because, you know, I've skated through life pretty, pretty easy. Um, that that sort of reinforced, like I, I knew it, I knew something bad was going to happen. Now, you know, the two, the two things were mutually exclusive events. They weren't linked, but in my mind they were. And so then that sort of said, well, then if this this is where it starts, it's just going to keep going. Yeah, yeah. And it then became this this extreme kind of anxiety and this this deep depression of you know um, loss, you know that and and you know everybody grieves when they lose somebody. It's I don't have a mortgage on on grieving the loss of a child or the loss of a family member, but it was the it was the absolute flow on effect of there really is no point in going on. And Mm. I always knew something like this was coming. I just never wanted to admit it Mm. followed up with, you know, I've been, I've been quite suicidal a few years before, but I'd come through it and I thought, Oh, you know, you know, you know, like, Oh, that was a bad time, but I clearly, you know, like I've moved through it and I'm, I'm all, I'm all good now to have it revisit and then bring its friends was really quite terrifying because I was like, I thought I got through all of this, you know, I thought I went through a bad patch and, you know, felt a bit suicidal, but 
even then I was of the belief that everybody went through a patch like this. I thought, well, everybody gets suicidal sometimes. Yeah. And now the, the, the doom that, that was, you know, provoking that anxiety just for so many years was like actualized. Yeah. Yes. And it was, it just removed from me the, the belief that um, there was any point in going on, mm. to be honest with you. Mm. Um, and you know that the the I genuinely believed that I was doing my wife a favour. Mm. I knew she'd be sad, obviously, but I thought, well, she'll get over it. She'll meet someone else, and she'll be much happier. So, short term pain, but long term gain for her. Um, and the same with my family. You know, the same with my friends. You know, like they'll. I'm no longer then going to be a burden. Uh, you know, they'll they'll be. I'm, I have no doubt they'll be devastated that I'm gone. I'm not. I'm not sort of delusional. I know that they'll care, but in the long run, they'll see this as the best thing. You know, in the long run, they'll understand that this is actually for the better, and they will be better for having me having taken my life. Um, which is a common misconception: this belief that that suicide is extremely selfish. It's it's actually the opposite. It's it's the belief that you are doing this because you genuinely believe these people will be better off without you. You you legitimately think that they will feel they will their lives will improve if you're not alone no longer in it. And that's just simply not true. It's just yeah. simply not true. But I believed it like I believe the sun's coming up tomorrow. Like I was like, well this is true. What were the first signs when you stopped believing that? I, I think it was a combination of things, was was getting the right medical treatment. It was spending time with a psychologist and, and talking through some of these feelings and really exploring, um, you know, really exploring them and, and, and being a bit vulnerable and being a bit honest um, about what I was going through that I just started to realise, I thought, look, you know, my wife would not be better off without me, you know, and it was this sort of, was almost like this realization, like maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe maybe people wouldn't be better off without me, you know. And it was it started as kind of this small kernel of an idea. Like I think that I, they would be better off without me, but maybe they don't believe that I'd be better off without me. So maybe you know, maybe it sort of started as well. Maybe I shouldn't do it yet because. Mm-hmm until they can see what I can see, then clearly, you know, what I'm trying to do is not going to be successful because they're not going to know why I'm doing it. They're going to think that I don't want to be with them when I do want to be with them, but I'm actually doing it for them. And that then grew as I continued to get the help that I needed and support that I needed, that I then started to realise that it wasn't that they were mistaken. It was that I was mistaken. It wasn't that they were, they were mistaken that they couldn't, get along without me I was mistaken thinking that they could and if something happened to me of course they could but they weren't better off you know that if, if you know that if I died tomorrow in a car accident knock on wood um, that my family wouldn't be better off without me and that's kind of the start you know when you start to realize that you think well you know I probably I probably have some reasons here to keep going and once you start down that track it snowballs, you know, once you start. And look, it's not to say that I don't 
I, don't, I haven't gone to the same level of crisis, but I still live with it from time to time. I still get that thought in my head, but I no longer see it as, as, a, as a friend. I see it as, a, as an enemy. For a long time, I thought if things got really bad, I could just kill myself. You know, so, uh, you know, I'd kind of, and it was, a, it was sort of this relief, this kind of gentle reminder, like, things won't get super bad because if they get super bad, you can just take your life. So you've got control. Like you can pull the, you can pull the switch much quicker than if it gets bad. I still get those thoughts like, oh, you know, but I don't see that. I don't get a relief now. I think I know what that is and that is not, that's not a relief. That's, that's, that's the wrong type of thinking. Um, and that's when, you know, once you start that, the, the healing kind of begins. And I don't want to sound like some, you know, televangelist wanker, but that's kind of the healing journey where you begin, you know, and then it just kind of grows from there. But it's, it's eternal vigilance. You have to always be mindful of it. And I have to be really mindful of my self-care. I have to think about, you know, how do I look after myself and make sure that I'm okay um, as well as the people around me are okay because I know, I know my kids are not better off without me. I know my wife's not better off without me. I know my family's not better off without me. Um, but my head can tell me something different sometimes. Mm. Logic and emotion are two different things. Mm. Yeah. On that note, I have got one more question that I, that I, that I do want to ask is, this is, this is probably a question, um, to if you can answer prior to um, losing your daughter and after um, mm -hmm. where you've been able to seek support what what was your relationship with death like in general like what, what and how did it change if it did change uh, well look um I would say I'd lost family members. I mean, everybody has lost family members of one kind or another in their life. And, you know, as you get older, you know, the people that were around when you were young, you know, are no longer there. So it's not that I was completely unaccustomed to death, but in a way, you know, death was a bit of a concept and, uh, you know, that it was sort of like, you know, oh, yeah, it's inevitable. I mean, we all die, but, yeah, you know, like that's a whole way away. And then death was almost, you know, it was a complex relationship because death was this sort of kind of friend that I could think of as like being really tired and going to sleep. Like if I just get too tired with life, I can just go to sleep. You know, and that's kind of how I can deal with life if it just gets too tough. Mm. Um, once we lost Hannah, my view on death became much more urgent because all of a sudden it was like, you know, death was someone that used to sing, you know, used to send me a letter every so often. Um, a few kids' letters, is, uh, they're pieces of paper that used to end up in your mailbox. Um, Death became, death was living next door. <laughs> I walked out my front door and death was like, hey, what up, player? You know, like I was like, shit, you know. We used to be some guy I thought about every so often. Uh, not that I want to be sexist, death might be a girl, but. Um, Go next door. Um, 
but it became something that that I needed to be much more aware of and much much more wary of because all of a sudden not only had you know not only had I experienced death firsthand in front of my very eyes but I had also you know it felt a bit like death was was at my house going we've been talking for a long time you know um it's time that we had a bit of a closer discussion you know you can't just call on me whenever you're kind of feeling a bit bad i'm here now so you know let's get busy you know like let's get on with it and so it became much more urgent it became much more present and it became much more pressing on my life and it scared me but it it, it also really soothed me it soothed me it scared me how much it soothed me that makes sense yeah um and so i needed to do something really urgently because you know i was like well you've come all this way you know like, oh, maybe we need to have a bit of a closer discussion um and you know logically i knew that was not what i wanted but emotionally it, it, it just felt so comfortable so comfortable at the time And the transition from probably, I mean, now, how do you, what's your relationship with death now? Look, death is someone, we, we exchange emails every so often, um, mm. but death has certainly moved out from the house next door. Um, death has become something that uh, no longer brings me comfort. Um, I understand that, you know, that death's inevitable. You know, we're all going to shake off a smaller coil at some point. But for me, it's not the comfortable friend that I once had. You know, like what now, when I think about taking my life, it doesn't bring with it a sense of relief. It brings with it a sense of panic. Like, I know I'm capable of those thoughts and I need to be really vigilant that I don't go there. Uh, and that's very different to what it used to be for me. What's the first thing you do when you hit that panic? Uh, I don't let it get that. I don't let it get that far advanced. But if it ever did get to that point, I would not hesitate to reach out and get help. Um, I would. I wouldn't even hesitate for a minute. I wouldn't feel any shame in going to a doctor or a, a trusted friend or whoever and saying I'm feeling suicidal and I need some help um, and whatever help that, that form comes in, I'd be open to it. Mm. I have no shame around that now because the stakes are too high. I can't, you know, well, it's not worth it. You know, um, who am I trying to impress by not seeking the help? You know, who, who do I, mm. who, who am I trying to impress? No one. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the people that matter don't really mind that I do that. And the people that mind if I do that, not that I know any, but if they did, they wouldn't really matter. I don't, I'm not interested in their opinion, you know. Seek excellence elsewhere is what I'd say to them. Tell your story walking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much from, yeah, from no both problems. of us. Um, no problems. It's been... Yeah, it's been amazing. And um, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time 
um, reliving and, and telling your story. Um, no I think I, uh, Maddie and I um, often will reflect on this and listen to it and send each other messages and um, about how pr- profound it was. It's always it's sort of like yeah, exposure. Okay. Waffles on. <laughs> how are we going to cut this down? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's, and look, that's, for what it's worth, I, I, yeah. I think um, what you're doing is really important. And I think you probably will never see the people that it help. It helps, but it would, you know, that, that bringing oh, yeah. this stuff out. And particularly, I know I'm going to sound really old, but young people like you guys, you know, sort of using a media like, you know, podcast to, to help spread this message is so important and it's such a vital thing. Mm. Um, and I think you guys should be proud of yourselves for putting yourself in these dark places to try and help others, you know. So I think keep on doing what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. Appreciate Thanks. that. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. That was Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief, and hope. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.